Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trends shaping the way we live and work. Today, we explore the future of social media. With nearly 4 billion users worldwide, we've seen social media used in toppling dictators, in creating celebrities and communities, and in assisting some of the most divisive politics seen in generations. To help us understand where social media is headed, Australian futurist Ross Dawson joins us. We discuss censorship, regulation, and the risks and benefits of how social media will be used in the years to come. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by the Think to Perform Research Institute, an organization committed to advancing moral, purposeful, and emotionally intelligent leadership. Ross, welcome to 12 Geniuses. It's fantastic to be on the show. Why don't you tell us where you are today and what you do for work? I'm uh, in Sydney, Australia, and I'm a futurist and entrepreneur. So I help leaders and organizations to think about the future so they can act better today. And I have uh, too many ventures on because I just can't hold myself back. And there's lots of exciting things to do. Let's talk about what the state of social media is today. So many of me and my peers were incredibly excited about the potential of connection. And that's what I've always believed in. And back in the 90s, putting some context in that, there were some very, very early manifestations of social media. But my, I just saw technology as a way to connect people. Most people at the time thought technology was the thing that you know, geeks got in basements dark basements in and cut themselves off from the world and technology is about cutting yourself off from the world. And I said, well, no, technology is about connecting to people. That's what the potential is. And so that's why I saw that it was inevitable that we were going to have social media. This is a way to connect. Humans want to connect to other people. And you know, again, this was a time of promise and potential. And people were seeing, you know, this is a way in which we can discover like-minded people. We can have interest groups. We can learn from each other. Twitter was the place where you could, wherever you were in the world, you could sit in on Silicon Valley conferences. So I think when we're looking at the state of social media today, we have to look at that context of the promise and the potential and the dream. So it was around five years ago that me and some of those other people who were just sort of dreaming of the possibilities and the potential started to say, oh, oops, uh, something's going wrong here. And so that's been this, this last four or five years we've started to see, okay, all right, there's a downside. There's a lot of negatives uh, which are coming to bear. And that has come to bear, not least through how the large social media companies have been approaching this. But also, you know, I think this, this is all a grand experiment in discovering who we are as humans. And back in 2006 or whatever it was, I, I described this idea of latent humanity, saying, okay, well, look at all these people getting onto Facebook. You know, a few years ago, they said, why would I ever do that? And then they started to get onto Facebook and they discovered aspects of themselves that they never even saw in themselves. And it's not as if we were being inhuman. We were just expressing parts of what it was to be human that never had the chance to be expressed before. And so this was a we were discovering who we were. We were discovering who we were as humans, being given the technology to connect in these ways and sharing, oversharing, of course, from way back. 
And then now we're starting to see this latent humanity, as it were, play out in uh, in negative ways, and discovering so this polarization and this this way to cluster and to self-affirm your views and to you know the echo chamber, which of course was topic of discussion back from you know the very beginning, building up these echo chambers, but. Now this has seemed to be something where people say, well, I only want to hear from people that have the same views from me. I don't want to hear from all of these people that have different opinions. Why would I do that? And we're discovering these aspects of who we are individually and collectively that are quite negative. What were the first indications that we were moving down a dangerous path? It really was the political polarization in 2015. 2016 in U.S., which is the most evident, and this was where we could see that there was this amplification of very pointed opinions, this people only being able to choose their own things. And of course, there was a few different slices to how when we, you know, this idea of fake news, and, you know, you can come to that phrase from a lot of different directions, but it is essentially there was a lot of what was patently false information flowing on social media, which was shaping people's opinions and the way in which they voted. And in fact, there have been studies made that have demonstrated that untrue media is most often amplified more than true media. That's, uh, you know, because you can design it just in a way to, to be amplified. So it was... 2015, 2016, particularly, you know, that, that's the most pointed point when we started to really see the crystallization. I mean, obviously, aspects of that coming to bear before, but that was the time when we started to see that shift in frame for social media. Whose responsibility is it for this level of divisiveness? Because you talked about, I think, latent humanity was the term that you used. And then there's also the social media platforms as well. Is it human nature or is it the social media platform that should be held accountable for this level of division that we're seeing? As a futurist, I believe in the first instance that it is possible that we can create an incredibly positive future for humanity. And I think that's a starting point for all of us. And if we believe that it is possible to create a better future for humanity, then with the step for what we need to work out is how do we do that? And Humans have gone to war since you know, we've been humans, and that hasn't stopped. We can hope that it's going to stop, but you know, that's, that's pretty hopeful. You know, obviously, humans are not angels. But we can imagine a world where, as individually and collectively, we are living rich, full lives, benefiting each other, whatever the positive future is you imagine. You know, we can imagine that. So the question becomes, all right, so whatever we are as humans, we can imagine that better future. How do we create that? So this becomes the, we look at the, you know, we can look at the role of individuals. We can look at the role of, of corporations. We can look at the role of government. We can look at the role of not-for-profits. You know, we all play a role. Everybody is creating the future as individuals in what they do and the choice they make. Corporations need to be making those choices. I think that is one of the fundamental shifts we've seen is there's more and more you know, studies have shown that 
we as society expect companies to be not just making profits, but actually making the world a better place. And we give our business to those companies that do that. We also, uh, now the role of government is to be able to hopefully with you know light-handed rather than heavy-handed, but to be able to put the places and the policies, the guidelines, the rules, whatever it is that being able to shape that positive future. And of course, there is a role for not-for-profits or other sectors as well in being able to bring ideas to light, to influence people, to shape the debates, to contribute, to potentially set up non-commercial social media platforms, for example, is another approach to that. So it's all of the above. Yes, I believe that we can have a, a wonderful, positive future for all of us in society. And the question is simply, how do we make that? And there's, there's many, many aspects of that answer. You mentioned the potential of not-for-profit social media organizations. Let's talk about business models for a moment. How do you see social media companies generating revenue in the future? Right now, it's through advertisement. But can you see a future where there's going to be a subscription model or maybe two models where it's free for some people and they share their data or it's subscription for others who want to keep their data more private? Yes, the ideas of subscriptions is real. And in fact, Twitter is beginning to essentially consider some variations on uh, subscription models or other ways in which people can pay access for access to TweetDeck or other tools or particular levels of access. Facebook is predicated on scale. And so it is certainly not going to make subscription a part of its model. It makes plenty from advertising. Facebook is also looking at other frames for providing the inputs to social media. So, for example, through augmented reality, virtual reality, and uh, thought interfaces, which essentially, of course, these are ways in which would amplify the, the scope of the, of the social media model. So, yes, there is the scope for some kinds of essentially subscription models. Those are never going to scale in the way that they could. And the other challenges, I suppose, are around the value of data for who uses the data about individuals. So there's arguably a case. Uh, so of so Doc Sells, one of the co-authors of Clue Train Manifesto, a while ago came up with this idea called VRM, which is vendor relationship management, which is the opposite of CRM, customer relationship management. So at the moment, companies manage their customers. They've got to gather lots of data about them and say, okay, how do we maximize lifetime value of our customers? From a customer point of view, say, well, actually, I've got lots of valuable data. I want to, I want, I've got people, things I want to buy, insurance or bed clothes or whatever it may be. And I own and will am prepared to share my data in specific instances if that gives me value. So it turns the whole thing around. And I think that there's been many, many initiatives over the years trying to do that. And the fact that we haven't actually had something of scale yet suggests it's going to be very difficult to make it happen. But there still is this possibility that we can have systems where individuals engage in social media or in commerce in a ways where they are owning their data, controlling their data, and engaging on the terms of their choice 
and creating a very different landscape in which the role, in this case, of social media would be very different and maybe needing to find different models to serve well. And so Facebook, for example, and Google, of, of course, make as much money as they do from advertising because they are serving exactly the right ad to the right person. I think just about everybody has this this uncanny thing of how on earth are they give me an ad for that when uh, when I just happen to start thinking about it <laughs> or whatever it may be. And this ability to turn that around, I think, could change the entire landscape of what social media is and the, and the need to find new revenue models. Are there any competitors to Facebook or any social media companies out there that have this model right now, this vendor relationship management? So there was Diaspora, which essentially open source platform, you know, very ambitious, and you have to be very ambitious, of course, to compete with Facebook based on sharing protocols and platforms. And that's, you know, not, not has not succeeded greatly. You know, back um, again, 2006 or so, I was involved in, um, you know, organizations around open data exchange. And again, there have been some protocols to establish essentially this is the information in your social media profile. And this becomes something which is exchangeable and exportable between different social media platforms. So, of course, the giants have never really warm to that because it means that people can leave and take their profiles and their connections with them. But there is, you know, very well established frameworks for being able to build essentially a social network, which has a open source structure where people can own their profile. And if they don't choose to, to move from that. But at this point, no, there's nothing which I would see as a, a viable competitor to Facebook and getting people to leave. How do you see the potential for regulation shaking out? Are there places around the world where social media companies are regulated and how would that work? Well, yes, I mean, there's, there's obviously there are, is regulation in social media all around the world and a whole variety of different levels. One which is not certainly not just social media, but applies across the board is uh, the European Union's General Data Privacy Regulation, GDPR, which essentially has global impact as any organization, as any body at all that touches them from EU has to comply with that. And that has really shaped the nature of, you know, it has impacted social media globally. Of course, various regulations and guidance from different authorities in the United States. Uh, and as I think you know, many people be aware there's been an interesting, well, not quite micro, but certainly uh, certainly interesting experiment in Australia recently, where legislation was making uh, Facebook and Google have to pay to provide links to news. Now that's that's you know a whole hour or more discussion in its own right. I suppose the very short story was that some pretty ill-thought legislation was brought to bear to be able to say that you know there's value being you know taken from media companies by the social media companies so they should pay for that and essentially there was some negotiation essentially and they've come to a conclusion where in fact Facebook and our Google are paying for news in some guys under modified legislation in Australia and this was preceded by legislation in Spain for example where they uh, tried to enforce Google uh, to pay for 
uh, links through to new sites. Uh, some other European Union countries also established some similar legislation. It's interesting that a number of countries around the world, or the governments of a number of countries around the world, made positive noises about what Australia's experiment in, uh, in this case, essentially, you know, super tax for these social media companies or in how they behave. So this is now, you know, this has heightened the debate on particularly the financial aspects of social media, but many countries have specific uh, legislation around social media and, and the European Union has probably been the most advanced. Do you feel like that is GDPR is strong enough in terms of regulation? I think at this point, GDPR in toto has proven to be a, a positive step. And I think, that, but there's also this other point to make that value for individuals can be created through data. And back in the day, I always used to say, you know, well, okay, let's, let's see, look at the scenarios of what will happen with data. If data is used to be able to exploit consumers, then it's going to be regulated out. We're not going to use it. If data is used to create value for individuals and you know, consumers, then people aren't going to object. And I guess you know, the industry as a whole took the exploiting frame to it as opposed to the helping frame. And now when I talk to organizations, essentially, it's, we say, look, the way to think about data is not how do you maximize your marketing value. The data way to think about data is how do you create value for your customer? And, the, and that's the, I, I frame fintech as, you know, not just you're fed up with your banks and your financial institutions that are stuck two centuries ago, but the fintechs have said, we've got all this data and we are going to use that to create value for our customers. And a lot of the, the fintechs and the reason why people are going with them is that they are framed around creating value for the customer, which a lot of the banks have never quite thought of it that way. So I think, again, if we think that in the frame of, you know, there's broader... So, the point being around GDPR or other similar data privacy legislation, there are risks that it cuts off value to individuals for how that data can be used to benefit individual uh, uh, customers. And I think where GDPR is, yes, there's been a lot of positive benefits in being able to stop the onslaught of data. And so, and part of the context for this is for the last two decades more, I've been following the unfolding of privacy. For most of this time, I've been astounded at how open people have been to just letting their data be used for no value for them. And that now finally in the last few years, we've, we've come to a point where essentially people are starting to say, whoa, this is getting a bit too much. And we are starting to get the legislation to uh, control that. And so now there is a, we might start to get more and more legislation around data privacy. But I do think we also need to recognize there is a risk that this is stopping the ability for companies, sometimes with good intent, of creating value for their customers. Just getting back to what you said a moment ago about uh, creating value for the customer, wouldn't the, wouldn't the social media companies say we are creating value for the customer by using their data and the consumer often is going to say, no, you're exploiting me by overusing the data. I mean, isn't that the argument that the lobbyists and, and executives would say from the social media companies? Yeah, absolutely. But what matters is what the individual thinks. 
Yeah, and I, and I share, you know, like I said, I I am surprised at how willingly people are uh, sharing their data, sharing their locations. Um, it's it's mind boggling to me, and I think a lot of it has to do with ignorance uh, or just not knowing exactly what's being stored, how powerful it is in aggregate. Um, you know, if it is being sold or shared, we haven't read those user agreements. And so that's put us in a very vulnerable position, I, I feel, as a consumer. Yes, and that's part of the education. So, of course, education is a significant part of how we get to a better outcome here. And to a certain degree, that has happened now, as in, as I said, people are waking up. And two, two aspects to that. One is simply just over time and seeing what's going on and seeing how things are working. But the other is also the scope of data. You know, we are literally, literally looking at, depending on which pieces you're taking, certainly hundreds fold more data about us individually than there used to be. And, and continuing to grow, I heard something recently. I think in 2020, we created 44 zettabytes of data, and we're on our way to about 12,000 zettabytes of data. And I think that's in a eight or 10 year period. So incredible growth of data and how that data will be used or manipulated is of great concern. And, and it should be because we've seen companies and not just social media companies use the data to manipulate and exploit and imagining that there might be 500 times the data that currently exists about human beings means that the ability to manipulate and influence is even greater than ever. Yeah, and I'd just like to take this in a slightly different direction in saying social media are a commons. We're all participating we have a common value. It is the potential for creation, you know, value creation for everybody through the breadth of participation. And it's how it's managed is, you know, how that value is allocated. Now, if we look to the world of health, and this is where there's billions of times more data than there was, literally. And the ability to have data about individuals and to aggregate that to understand how um, this can be used in, for, to help other people. And take a case in point, let's say you have a, a full genetic profile and also behavioral data and just oh, every aspect of your ailments for every individual on the planet. The boon to medical science would be unimaginable. We will understand for an individual with a particular genetic profile, with a particular history, with a particular behaviors, looking at a whole pool of other people that we could actually know what the interventions would be, which would make them as healthy as possible. Yet, that is fraught, of course, in the extent of personal data that would be required to be able to make this happen. And so this is one of the big challenges for us moving forward, is this idea of how do we take this aggregation of you know, immense amounts of individual health data, which people feel rightly feel very, um, you know, I, I suppose, feel is very personal, uh, to be able to create common value for society. And the, you know, there is no simple answer to this, but I think this is an analog in a way to social media. 
How do you see social media companies managing fake news going forward? My next book is about how individuals can best make sense of a world of universe of information and knowing that some of the information out there is not going to be accurate. So in the case of social media organizations, I suppose there's a crude way of being able to use a whole variety of AI-based and other technology tools to assess the veracity of a particular um, piece of news piece or article which is posted on the site to be able to either determine whether or not it should be allowed on the site, whether it should be flagged as contentious. And, but the thing is, there start to be judgment calls around, well, what is it? This is debatable. Okay, maybe it's just presenting one side of an argument, but that is one you know, arguably valid side of the argument, for example. And so you have to start to get down to very, you know, there are some things say, okay, this is a, you know, a fact is stated in this article and that fact is incorrect. And so, you know, you can say, such and such politician did this. And you can go back and say, well, actually, no, they didn't. And so you can say, all right, well, that, that article is not appropriate to be put up. But there's a lot more which is far more vague. And so this is where we've started to see, essentially, social media organizations. Yes, there's the challenges of how do you scale this judgment of whether you, know, you place various degrees of everything from banning to flagging to not making it very visible in people's streams to a whole array of other measures. How do you scale that? And that requires, uh, of course, many people who have good judgment, which is pretty hard to get. And then there are also the political you know, aspects of this in the sense of what do politicians think about these policies? Are they believing that we are biased? in the way in which uh, we are filtering these things. And if the government in power is threatening to do things to them, uh, actually, this sounds like a real life story, then uh, they start to shape the ways in which they filter those things. And this, these are realities. I think you know, the, what, this, what I've just described is what has been happening, but I, you can't see a way in which that's not going to happen. Politicians will always sound off. Companies are subject to those politicians' regulations. And there is essentially, there is no pure objective way to be able to filter this information in a right way. And so that will be subject to social uh, aspects, but ultimately that aggregate of that is the political aspects of that. And this is deeply unfortunate, but this is you know, essentially the situation we're in. I like the idea of some sort of AI scoring. That's a, something that I've been thinking about for a while. So something gets posted and it's not exactly true, but it's not an outright lie. And so it gets a score of 72 out of a you know, out of 100. An absolute truth gets 100. Something that's a, an outright lie gets a, a one. But there's potential for bias in that. And something that's accepted as a fact may be proven as to be an untruth uh, later on. So I, there are some issues with that, but I, I've been thinking about the same thing as well. How do you think that these companies can better manage hate speech and cyberbullying without impeding free speech? I think we can get, let's call it academic you know, input, input from people who study 
the impact of these kinds of, of bullying in the broader sense. Understanding what it is, the way it manifests itself, and how we can mitigate that. So this is where actually there is plenty of social research, which is very valuable in being able to frame these kinds of choices and discussions. And I think it's something where we tend to be harsher in a way than for, for some other domains. This is where we are impacting people's psyches. And again, there has been demonstrated that there have been many negative aspects on people's feeling of well-being through engagement in social media. And in the case of the ways in which you are able to scale bullying, this is particularly important and obviously particularly important for younger and more vulnerable people. So again, there is no easy way to distinguish the line, but I do believe it's possible to be able to you know, ascertain whether something is having or potentially having negative impact on people and being able to filter that out. So of course, you know, very early on, we had the ability to block people on social media. But as people point out that there are things which are said, which once you've seen, you can't unsee them. They leave an impact on you. You can block them afterwards, but you've still had this impact on you. So again, yeah, there are certainly ways in which AI can be a significant part of the picture, also, also in predictive bullying, as it were. First step is as many tools as possible for the individual to control and to protect and to put up the layers of protection and having protected accounts or whatever it may be that's appropriate for them. Being able to have some degree of flagging through AI or other systems around whether there may be things which would be negative for an individual or you know, aspersions to sectors of the population and being able to flag those. And, and the human judgment role, again, which is the same issue with fake news, the challenge of scaling the people with good judgment to be able to promptly get on top of what is happening. These are very deeply challenging, but you know, there are also, we can design systems which can be as good as they possibly can be to address these issues. The deplatforming of President Trump while he was a sitting president, I think gave people an, a real clear understanding of just how powerful these social media companies are, and particularly the social media executives. And I'm curious to know what concerns you have over that power, because if it can be used against a conservative politician, it can be used against a liberal politician. It, you know, the, it just illuminated and an incredible amount of power placed in the hands of these unelected people, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and others. And I'm just curious how you see that playing out in the future. As you say, it is a massive amount of power. And particularly in the case of Trump, who's so much of his impact was through his Twitter. And taking that away has you know, as you say, an executive, corporate executive decision having massive political implications. So I suppose the the way to frame this is saying, how can we build in accountability, I suppose, for those decisions in terms of financial impact, you know, that impact to company in terms of social impact, in terms of how politicians are 
so the political structures are guided. So this is, you know, in a way, this is something where is at the center of how we need to be framing these debates moving forward. You know, this is a critical juncture. And that's, you know, this question is part of that critical juncture. I don't have an answer. I don't know anybody that has a really good answer to that, that question either. So in a way, way, I've been answering all these questions saying, well, these are the pieces of the, the, the potential pieces of the answer, which we need to be considering in order to be able to, to get to this point. The vision of me and my peers who were there from the very outset of social media is that these are commons, that they are not owned, that they are something which is created by and managed by all of us collectively. Somebody suggested to me that this is like a publishing platform and that the the companies need to be accountable for what's published here, like the Washington Post or the New York Times or any other newspaper. And that just seems absolutely impossible to me to hold these companies that accountable. The individuals have to be held accountable or maybe the maybe the advertisers are held accountable if they're advertising on, you know, uh, something that is clearly fake. And then if the advertisers push back to the platform, maybe there is a way that uh, there is self-regulation versus having politicians regulate. These are just some of the things that I've been thinking about, but it, it definitely is not a newspaper or a a television channel it's 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 not possible absolutely it's a they can't manage that however much politicians would like them to do so it's uh they are platforms people can post you can't moderate everything there does need to be levels of moderation but you can't make a technology company responsible for everything that goes up on it they do have responsibilities and accountabilities but it is not to say, you know, you are liable for everything that goes up. We're recording this in March of 2021, and you've been following social media since its very early days. In your opinion, has social media benefited humankind more than it's hurt us? I would say yes, in all. So, yeah, I think it's hard to, for people to remember before social media in terms of their ability to connect. So I don't know, everyone has reconnected with people they went to school with, people they've worked with in the past, you know, now keeping in touch with people, able to share with family, with others, to share their lives. So these are all, I think, fundamentally good things. Humans connect. That's what we do. And I think that that's, we've been able to do that in ways where I think, you know, I think everyone would miss it if we would not have these tools to be able to connect to other people. There are many downsides, including I think many people have got sucked into the vortex of following the feed, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of mental issues in terms of, you know, comparing yourself to others and many, many others and go on for a long time about the negatives. But yeah, if you're into my question, which is, you know, if we'd said we'd never had social media or we've had it, then yes, I think Overall, I think it has been a positive. The negatives have become extremely apparent. But these are, again, how do we create a positive future? We need to look at what, how do we augment the positives and minimize the negatives. 
I saw a television interview that you did back in 2012, and you said that social media is going to move to the center of how things work, how governments work, how people find jobs, the center of our lives. And you are absolutely right. Nine years later, it's clear you are absolutely right. What does the future of social media look like? When you think out five years, 10 years, what do you see? Firstly, just putting on the, the futurist hat and as to where it will go. Yes, our desire to connect is unquenchable and it is going to become richer and richer. We will have more and more virtual reality connections. We'll have augmented reality used as to be able to bring other people into rooms to have conversations with. And yes, we will have thought interfaces, not just direct directly, but to other people. And we will be sharing more. In, in many aspects, though potentially sometimes to smaller groups of people. So there's a lot of technologies that will deepen the extent of that connection. But back to the sort of themes of our conversation in terms of what does this look like as an industry? You know, I asked, I think I wrote a blog post, I don't know, maybe t 10 years ago or something saying, you know, what, what scenarios are there for Facebook not to be the dominant platform in five years from now? And I looked through a number of possibilities and I said, well, no, there's not very likely. And so now I think, you know, that's again, a great question to ask. What are the scenarios whereby, you know, LinkedIn's relatively benign and I think it will continue to exist as hard to see a major compared to it. You know, we're starting to see a lot of younger generation social media, which far more about fast paced sharing. I think we're going to see a lot more of that, a lot more visual, a lot more video, a lot more Again, you know, using these deeper forms of engagement for very rapid fire, very short form uh, exchanges. For those who are not teenagers, engage more in tools such as what are currently Facebook and Twitter. I think we can start to ask the questions, what goes beyond this? I think one of the key things is going to be still looking to that dream or that potential for a agnostic third party platform, which is open where people can engage and go beyond that. And that's not likely, but I think something which is possible where we start to see a viable alternatives for the current uh, giants. Ross, where can people learn more about you? Well, the easy place is rossdawson.com or uh, at Ross Dawson on Twitter, or you can follow me on uh, LinkedIn at Ross Dawson. Wonderful. We'll put that in the show page notes. Ross, I really appreciate your time today and thank you for being a genius. It's been a real pleasure to be with you, Don. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thank you to our sponsor, the Think to Perform Research Institute. The next episode will explore the future of policing with Jim Birch, president of the National Police Foundation. That episode will be released April 20th, 2021. Thank you to our historical consultant, Brian Beerbaum, and a very special thank you to 12 Geniuses producer, Devin McGrath. This will be Devin's last episode as a member of the 12 Geniuses team. For two and a half years, Devin has been largely responsible for the quality of the guests and the show itself. If you're listening to this show, there's a good chance Devin had a hand in bringing 12 Geniuses to your attention. Devin, we wish you the best of luck in the future. You're going to continue doing great things. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.